Well, we are leaving chapter 3 of 1 Peter and moving into chapter 4 today. And we're going to be focusing on verses 1 and 2, which say, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. There's a strong link between the opening words of chapter 4 and what has gone before it in chapter 3. And what we have as we move into chapter 4 is a strong exhortation for God's children to live holy lives even if it increases our suffering. The third chapter concludes with an account of Christ's victory over suffering. The fourth chapter begins with a call for Christians to reflect Christ's attitude towards suffering. And in many ways, this is one of the missing messages of modern Christianity, the concept of suffering for Christ, the concept of sacrifice, the concept of commitment when it costs us something. That, unfortunately, has become foreign to the thinking of many of God's children today. But it certainly was not foreign to Peter or to the New Testament believers in his day. In examining these two verses today, I want us to see, number one, a seminal fact, number two, a serious admonition, third, a significant reminder, and fourth, a superior goal. We begin by noticing a seminal fact with which Peter opens this chapter. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, And I think we can see immediately the contextual connection with what has gone before, indicated by the first two words of our text, the word therefore and the word since. The word therefore indicates a conclusion based upon previous statements, and we cannot really properly consider the therefore unless we understand what it is drawing from, what it is basing its conclusion upon. But, of course, since we have been studying that in previous Lord's Days, most of us will be well prepared to understand that connection. And then that word since also points to previous information. Since something took place, since something happened, since something that I said before relates to what I'm going to say now. And actually what Peter is doing is returning back to the statement in verse 18 of chapter 3. And verse 18 said, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ also suffered once for sins. And then we can jump down and pick up the opening statement of verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. And I think you see the obvious connection. Which tells us, therefore, that verses 19 through 22 of chapter 3 could be thought of as something of a parenthesis. Peter's theme was suffering. When he got to the suffering of Christ in verse 18, he went in another direction for a few verses, namely to tell us that though Christ suffered, he greatly triumphed over his suffering. 
And that he details for us. Yes, he suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. But being put to death in the flesh, he was made alive by the Spirit. That's victory over death. And he went and preached to the spirits in prison, you recall, proclaiming victory over them. And he ascended back to heaven, and he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Great triumph, great victory that flowed out of the suffering of Christ. And that's very helpful. We've found those verses very encouraging to our own lives as we have realized that suffering in the design of God always ushers forth in joy and triumph and victory, both for Christ as well as for the people of God. And that makes it easier for us to suffer because we know that suffering is temporary and there is great reward that is coming out of suffering. That's good information. That's helpful information. But now Peter brings us back to the suffering side of things in chapter 4. And he begins chapter 4 calling upon Christians to have the mind of Christ in our suffering. Here is an exhortation based upon Christ's suffering. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. And so this solemn reality of Christ's suffering for us, a suffering that required that he should become a man, That's what he's talking about when he says he suffered in the flesh. That is, he suffered as a man. He suffered in humanity like we are human and we suffer in our humanity. And Christ in the incarnation took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men precisely so that he could suffer as a man. He had to do that in order to redeem us unto himself. And as we know, Christ not only suffered as a man, but he suffered all the way to the ultimate suffering, namely death. He became a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The ultimate suffering, the ultimate sacrifice is what Christ made on our behalf. And now Peter wants to make a link between Christ's suffering and the Christian's suffering. Or maybe I should put that the other way around. He has previously made a link between the Christian suffering and Christ's suffering, and now he wants to return to that theme. You remember how often Peter talks about suffering in this book. And if you were paying attention as we read chapter 4, you saw that it came up repeatedly throughout chapter 4, at the beginning, at the middle, at the end. It's all throughout chapter 4, and it was previously in the three chapters that have gone before chapter 4. And we could go back to chapter 3, verse 13. Or Peter says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer. That is, if your suffering is for righteousness sake, you are blessed. For verse 18, Christ also suffered. Therefore, chapter 4 verse 1 since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. And so all of this ties together. And the interesting thing is that Peter's focus is not primarily upon Christ's ultimate victory over suffering, though that is true and that is helpful and there is a place for us to dwell upon it, but 
He just simply tells us about that. There really is no exhortation connected with the fact of Christ's triumph over suffering. Now, he told it to us for a reason. He didn't refrain from mentioning it at all. He obviously wanted us to reflect upon it and to rejoice in it and to draw applications for our own suffering and our triumph over suffering from it. But he really doesn't specifically make that application here. But what application does he make? He makes the application that we are called upon to suffer like Christ suffered. Not that we are going to triumph like Christ triumphed. Again, though that's true and helpful, but the practical New Testament application, in other words, the emphasis, the the major emphasis of this passage is prepare yourselves for suffering. Because if you're not properly prepared, you are going to suffer damage when suffering comes your way and you are not prepared for it. So be prepared for suffering. And that's a little harder to swallow. We'd all like to be prepared for victory, for joy, for triumph, for the ultimate reward, for the crown that comes at the end of the suffering. And that's true, and we can look forward to that and draw great strength from it. But if we only focus on that and, as it were, just sort of neglect, ignore, deny the reality of suffering now and the fact that it is God's will for his children to suffer now, then we're not going to be prepared for life as it really is. And we won't even be well prepared for that day of glory and victory that's coming. And so it begins with a seminal fact. Christ suffered and died and then moves on to a serious admonition. Because Christ suffered and died, therefore since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, and here's the admonition, Arm yourselves also with the same mind. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. As a verb, this Greek word, arm yourself, is used only here in the New Testament, but as a noun, speaking of arms, it is used six times in the New Testament and always refers to weapons of warfare. So there's no question what Peter means here. He means take up arms. Equip yourselves for battle. Arm yourself. Take up your weapons. Evidently, Peter recognizes that there's some serious spiritual warfare involved in this truth about our suffering and that we better be armed properly for the suffering that is appointed to us by God or we will be defeated when that suffering comes at us like an enemy and we are unprepared to battle it, to war against it, to strike a blow against it, and to defeat it. But how are we to arm ourselves? We're all aware of Paul's enumeration of spiritual armor in and Ephesians, rather, chapter 6, how we arm ourselves with the breastplate of righteousness and with the sword of the Spirit, and with the helmet of salvation, and so forth. And that's a wonderful study, and all of that could be applicable here. But that's not what Peter says. He, he makes it more simple than that in this particular place. And he says, arm yourselves with the same mind that Christ had. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. That is, the mind that Christ had when he suffered. 
Read it all together. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. With the mind that Christ had when he suffered in the flesh. The mind of Christ. That reminds us of Philippians 2, 5 and following, where Paul admonishes us to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and so forth. And there Paul tells us to adopt the mind of Christ that reflected his humility, his willingness to humble himself, his willingness to to condescend, his willingness to become a servant, and yes, his willingness to suffer in that condition. But the emphasis there is upon humility. Here, a different word is employed for mind. It's not the same Greek word that you find in Philippians 2.5, but the concept is very much the same. The word that is used here is found only here and in Hebrews 4.12, which tells us, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the, of the uh, what is it, the soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And that word translated intents, the intents of the heart in Hebrews 4.12 is the word that Peter employs in 1 Peter 4.1. The intents of the heart. And that's a very descriptive Greek word, and it really combines together two ideas. Number one, the process of thinking, and number two, the result of that process. First of all, it focuses upon analysis. In other words, the mind of Christ in regard to suffering wasn't that he just kind of shut out of his mind what was, what was ahead of him, just sort of pushed those unwelcome thoughts away from himself and sort of blindly marched into suffering un, unaware of what was going to take place because that was the only way to be able to do it. But just the opposite of that. Christ carefully analyzed everything that was involved. He knew exactly what was coming. He had a perfect understanding of what his suffering entailed. And on the basis of that process of his thinking and that clear understanding that he came to in thinking, he came to a certain result, a certain resolution, a certain holy resolve, namely that he was going to endure the suffering at all costs. The mind of Christ was to analyze the situation, understand the cost, and then to resolutely march into suffering, knowing the greatness of the cost. And Peter says, that's the mind that you need. That's how you must arm yourself for the trials of life. Sin, as we know, and this is all against the backdrop of either sinning or refusing to sin, as the passage unfolds, that becomes clear. Sin brings immediate gratification, but eventual suffering 
and the eventual suffering is far greater than the temporary gratification. That much I think we know, but we need to dwell on it more. We need to think about it more. We need to think it through. Because when we're not thinking about this, then we find it so easy to just sort of, without resistance, go ahead with, go with the flow and enjoy the gratification that comes with immediate surrender to temptation and not to consider those great consequences that are going to flow out of that. That's part of the thinking process that we need here. But here's the other side of it that sometimes we don't even understand at all. And that is that obedience often brings immediate loss. But it also brings eventual reward. And the reward for obedience is always greater than the loss, the suffering that might have come first. Whereas with sin, it's the other way around. The eventual loss is always greater than whatever was immediately gained. Now that's the thing you need to think through and keep in mind. That's what Christ did. Christ was tempted to disobey the Father and therefore to sin in order to short-circuit the process of his eventual glory and triumph. Remember when Satan came to tempt him and one of the things he tempted him with, he said, just bow down yourself to me and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Well, Christ knew that the reward for his going to the cross was going to be that he would become the king of the universe. But he also understood the great level of suffering that lay between the crown and that, that, that reward. The, the cross that lay and all that led up to the cross that was between him and the crown. He understood that. And the temptation was... You can have that without suffering. You can have that without loss. You can have that without having to suffer in this way. Just bow down before me and I'll give you your reward now. But of course, Christ knew that in doing that, he would forfeit everything eventually. Well, the same is true of us. It's that way in every temptation, every decision where we are weighing the benefits and liabilities of either obeying God or doing our own thing. To do our own thing will bring immediate gratification and pleasure of some kind. But don't forget the long-range cost, the, the greater liability that always follows, whereas obeying the Lord often brings great Suffering, different degrees of it, but it's not, it wars against the flesh. And many times it brings immediate liability. And we have to pay a price in order to obey the Lord. But don't forget, what is the long-range benefit from that? Now, take all of that analysis into account. That would be having the mind of Christ. Choose obedience and the resulting suffering over disobedience and immediate gratification. So, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. And you don't have to read very much in the Gospels to get a clear picture of Christ's attitude towards suffering. 
How many times did he say, I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me? When Christ was getting closer to the cross, we read that he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He was determined not to be detoured from the cross by anyone or anything. He was determined to go through with it, knowing full well all that was involved. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was being pressed down by a weight of agony that we could never fully understand. But he cried out, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Continually yielding to the will of the Father, even knowing that it meant suffering and immediate loss. And that's the way he lived his life. He said this in John 12, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Where is it that the servants of Christ follow him? To death. The grain has to fall on the ground and die before it produces fruit. Christ said, I've got to die to produce the reward of redemption and all the other blessings that come with my coming to earth, my incarnation, and my eventual reigning on the throne of God as the God-man in heaven. But first of all, I've got to fall into the ground and die, just like a seed of corn has to fall in the ground and die. And he said, you do too. You do too. I didn't suffer and die in order to spare you from suffering and death. I suffered and died to show you the way of suffering and death. If you want to be my servant, then follow me where I'm going. And we know how many times Christ said things like, take up your cross and follow me. Luke 9.23, he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Or Matthew 10.34. Do not think that I am come to bring peace on earth. We don't like to have a peaceful, stress-free situation without tension and conflict. Do not think that I am come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. That is, if you are a follower of Christ and they are not. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life that is, protects it, guards it, makes things as comfortable for himself as he can. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life, he's willing to give it up, is willing to suffer in order to be obedient to the Lord. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now that's the kind of thinking you better arm yourself with. That's reality. 
And so that brings us then to the significant reminder. The last part of verse 4. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let me read the whole verse again. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? And here we are to another exceedingly difficult statement by Peter. We didn't leave all the difficult ones behind in chapter 3. We picked up another one in chapter 4. It's almost amusing to hear Peter talk about the difficult statements of Paul. Remember what he said in 2 Peter 3.15? And considering that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand. Said Peter about Paul's writings. In some of Paul's epistles, there are things which are hard to understand. Well, Peter, I must say that there are things in your epistles that to me seem harder to understand than the things I find in Paul's epistles. And here's another one. What do you mean? Well, it's obvious that in this statement, Peter is linking together suffering and holiness in some way. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We've got suffering on the one hand, we've got holiness on the other hand, and there's a link between them. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. But how these two things are related is not easy to say. And let me give you a few in- interpretations. I'll give you one that has been commonly utilized, which I totally reject, and that is some have taught that, that this means that suffering helps to atone for our sins. How they would get that out of this statement, I have no idea. It really isn't there. But when you're trying to teach a doctrine that doing penance and and various kinds of of, uh, physical suffering that you impose upon yourself can help you atone for your own sins, you would like to find some scriptural support for it somewhere if you can. And if this is the best you can do, you grab it and run with it. But uh, that's not what this says at all. But what does it say? What does it mean? Some have tried to get away from the difficulty of it by saying, well, it refers only to Christ and not to Christians. It's saying, for Christ, when he suffered in the flesh, ceased from sin. Not, of course, that he ever sinned himself, but that after he died, he left the realm of sin behind forever. That was the end of his suffering. That was the end of of his conflict. That was the end of his temptation. That was the end of the sinful designs of men toward him. That was the end of the satanic determination to to uh, abort his mission upon earth. When he died, he ceased from all of that. And he went to be with his father in heaven and sits upon the throne where he cannot be touched by any of those things anymore. And that, of course, is all very true. It's a wonderful truth that we've already seen revealed in the end of chapter 3. But it doesn't really seem to do justice with what Peter's saying here because this statement in the end of verse 1 seems to link to what he's talking about Christians in verse 2. 
He says, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. That can't be talking about Christ. That can only be talking about Christians. So let's rule that one out. Some have said that they believe this refers to Christian martyrs. That those who suffer for Christ's sake unto death escape sin. When they die, that's the end of sin and its enmity and temptations and consequences in their life. And that also is very true. But the only problem with that is it's not only true of martyrs, it's true of every Christian who dies. Whenever we die, that's when we all escape from sin, the realm of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin. We escape from that whenever we die. So I think what Peter is saying must fit into the category of one of these last two interpretations. Either this one, the process of suffering tends to weaken the strength of sin and temptation in our lives. And that is true if we suffer obediently. Now, it doesn't help us a bit if we're chafing against the suffering and complaining against God and, and uh, unwilling to submit to the providences that he brings into our lives. If we are suffering in a resisting way, then that doesn't strengthen or help us at all. But if we submit to suffering when it comes our way, yield to the will of God, bow before the Lord, accept his providences, pray to him for strength and health, it, it really help. It really does seem to, to wean us away from the things of earth. That suffering makes things so, less, so much less valuable. That suffering makes earthly pleasures so much less tempting. That suffering helps us to focus more upon Christ and upon eternity and upon the things which are of eternal value. Suffering in the flesh in that way really does have a strengthening effect in our lives. It has a purging effect in our lives in the sense that it tends to purge us away from the strength of sin and temptation. That is very true. Or a fifth interpretation takes it back a step before the suffering even begins and talks about not the process of suffering, but rather the decision to obey, even if it means suffering, grants great victory over sin. In other words, a willingness to suffer for Christ's sake also has a great strengthening effect in our lives. It has a way of lessening the strength of sin and temptation that comes to us. And a series of such decisions, which most of us face many throughout life, if we make one decision after another in this, in this track, in this vein, that we are not going to sin, we are going to obey the Lord, come what may, we are willing to suffer in order to be obedient to the Lord and pleasing to Him, a series of such decisions results in great strength. However, it never eliminates sin and temptation from our life. There's no place where we become entirely sanctified until we die. 
but it certainly strengthens resistance to temptation. Now, is that what Peter is saying? Solution? I don't know. This is one of those times that I just really cannot come to a conclusion that I think is the right one. But I think the intent of what Peter is saying is very apparent. I'm confident that this statement refers both to Christ and Christians, though not in exactly the same way. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's true of Christ in one way. That's true of Christians in another way. When we die, we are released from the realm of sin. I forgot another interpretation. I didn't even mention it. (coughs) That interprets this symbolically as when we uh, died with Christ in symbolized by baptism, and that that's what this is referring to. I don't think so. But I think it refers to Christ and Christians, though not in exactly the same way. And I think it's saying something like this. If our goal is to please God and gain victory over sin, we will not shrink from suffering. If our highest goal in life is, like Christ himself, to please our Heavenly Father... And not to sin, then we will not shrink from suffering. Because we have come to the conclusion that pleasing God is more important than comfort. Pleasing God is more important than being embarrassed by our friends and those around us who may mock us. Pleasing God is more important than being persecuted for doing what's right. Pleasing God is more important even than being killed, being a martyr for the cause of Christ. Pleasing God is more important than anything else. And if our highest goal is to please God and to resist sin, then suffering will not overcome us. It will not shake us to our very foundation. Because we will understand that suffering does not impede this goal. In fact, it often helps to achieve it. Now, if our goal is to have all the fun we can in life, if our goal is to make ourselves as comfortable as we can in life, if our goal is to be as highly thought of by others in life, if these are our goals, if our goal is to accumulate wealth in life, and our goal is to to, uh, pursue our hobbies, and if that becomes our, our highest goal, if our goal is sexual pleasure in life and all of these other things, then, of course, the thought of suffering will tear us up because... It is going to damage all of those goals in some way or another. It's chipping away at our reason for living. It's chipping away at our goals in life. So, of course, we're going to avoid suffering any way we can. And we're even going to be willing to sin, to compromise and to sin in order to avoid suffering, in order to avoid embarrassment, in in order to avoid financial loss, in order to avoid pain if we can. Of course, we can't always do that, but we'll do that if we can. But when our highest goal is to obey the Lord and to not sin, if our goal is never to sin, even though we know that 
That, that's not possible till we get to heaven. But still, if we set that as our goal, my goal is never to sin. My goal is always please the Lord. Then suffering does not impede that goal. In fact, it often helps us achieve it. So suffering doesn't seem like such a bad thing in that case. In fact, even the ultimate suffering, death, what is that? Well, that's just the achievement of our goal. What's our goal? To get to the place where we never sin. When is that achieved? When we die. So what's death? That's bullseye. That's not so bad, is it? And when that's our goal, then disobedience, not suffering, is what we avoid at all costs. I think that clearly is the intent of what Peter is saying, whatever exactly he means by this phrase. And so that brings us, number four, to a superior goal, which is verse two, and I think follows up what I have said and makes it clear that this is what Peter is talking about. Because he says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Our superior goal is a goal that all of life is lived to please the Lord. That's our goal. That's our desire. To do that, we have to reject the inferior goals of unregenerate humanity all around us and constantly aim to please the Lord in every area of our life. No longer should live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lusts of men. No longer. And that looks back to our pre-conversion life and the way we used to live our life before Christ found us. We lived for self. But now, no longer. We're not living for self. We're living for Christ. We want to live the rest of our time for the will of God. However long that may be, the rest of our time. That may be 60 or 70 or 80 years. That may be one more day. But however long it is, we want it all to count for Christ. We want it all to be lived for His glory. That's our goal. The will of God. And that's the only goal that's worth living for, dear friends. And that's the goal that you'll wish had been your lifelong goal when you stand before the Lord someday. Now let me see how many lessons I can draw from this before we conclude. My first lesson is a caution regarding the modern church growth movement. You say, surely not. Surely so. Because I see in this a great danger that wars against exactly what Peter's talking about in this text. It seems like the main attraction in the modern church growth movement, as it's generally uh, formulated, is to minimize sacrifice, to minimize suffering, to minimize costly commitment. It's trying to make church pleasing to the flesh. It's trying to withdraw all the difficult elements out of it. Oh, you've had bad experiences with the church in the past, but we've got a church that you're going to love because we've taken all the bad experiences out. Well, no doubt some people have had bad experiences because of bad Christians. There's no question about that. But a lot of those bad experiences are the 
rebellions of our flesh, warring against truth. So isn't it great? Instead of saying, you're going to have to face this truth, and you're going to have to yield, come over here. We've got a brand of Christianity where you don't have to do that. You can just continue to to rebel and just sort of set all that aside. It isn't really that important anyway. It seems to me like one of the main attractions of the modern church growth movement is to avoid the reproach of the world. It's to be cool instead of to be stalwart, to be obedient, to be faithful. Cool Joe Christians. We've got a style of Christianity that that is cool. You don't You don't have to be different. You don't have to be a reproach. You don't have to be laughed at by your friends. You can be cool and still be a Christian. You didn't know that? Well, we're going to show you how. And we're going to emphasize fun and joy and popularity and acceptance and, and show you that Christianity is mainstream. You thought somebody told you that, that Christians were kind of out of the mainstream and were, were likely to be mocked and scoffed at by the world in general. Why, that's not true. We can, we can refabricate Christianity to make it mainstream. Well, what Bible have you been reading? Not the Bible I'm reading. And so the attempt is to minimize hardship and pain and reproach. And what is the result? Well, there are a lot of results. Let me give you a few. But one of the main ones is that Christians are unprepared for the trials of life. They haven't armed themselves with the mind of Christ. Because instead of arming themselves with the mind of Christ, which says, I am willing, understanding that suffering is part of it, I am willing to suffer in order to be obedient to my Heavenly Father, instead of arming themselves with the mind of Christ, they have the mindset that Christians who are living for the Lord ought to be able to avoid all pain and suffering. Everything in the Christian life ought to be fun, fun, fun. So when trials come along, like they come along to all of us, they don't know how to handle them. Like when an unexpected death comes to someone that dies in a way that seems to be premature to us, they don't know how to handle that. Makes them mad at God. Makes them unable to understand how a good and loving God can let something like that happen. Because their whole mindset has been to remove pain and suffering and cost from the Christian life. A second result is that counterfeit Christians are found in these churches who are deceived about their true condition. The church has been made so much like the world that you don't even have to have a regenerate heart to feel at home. So you can go to church and sing the songs and worship and consider yourself a Christian and you're never going to be going to be convicted about sin. You're never going to be challenged about the uh, the failures in your life and the things that are disobedient to the Lord and, and challenged as to why you're not willing to make a serious commitment for Christ. We, we've made it so that you don't have to have any of those things. So you've got multitudes of people who've never been born again. And the sad thing is nobody's ever going to challenge them about it. They're going to be encouraged to think that they're all right. A third result is that you're going to have many Christians who are eager to compromise with the world. Every time something comes along that looks like cost, embarrassment, ridicule, suffering, persecution, I've got to find a way to get out of that. Even if it means compromising truth. 
That's not so hard. It's real easy. You just reinterpret the scriptures. You know, that's your interpretation. This is mine. And away we go. And the fourth result is a world that is understandably confused about Christianity. If the church is going to mirror the world, then what is Christianity anyway? It's looking more and more just like the world. And what is this? But a failure to understand our text. A failure to arm yourselves with the mind of Christ in regard to suffering. A failure to understand the truth. Now, the cautions that I mentioned regarding the modern church movement, I also, if I had time, could issue some cautions about Christians in evolution. I think I see much the same thing there. I see some Christians who want to be thought intellectual and respectable at all costs. And so they're going to adopt some kind of, of a compromise, some kind of theistic evolution, when it seems to me that not only is the Bible clear, and that settles it, but it seems to me that the real scientific evidence points more to creation than to evolution. There are all kinds of problems with evolution, but if your goal in life is to not be mocked, not to be scoffed at, not to be thought fuddy-duddy, not to be thought ignorant, if that's more important to you than truth and obeying the Lord and pleasing Him, then, of course, that looks like an attractive alternative, doesn't it? But you need to arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Be willing to stand and let the chips fall where they may. I'll make one more application And that is in the realm of Christians and politics. We need to guard our hearts and our motives. It's it's right and appropriate for Christians to be involved as citizens in our world. We, We have the same right to vote, the same right to speak, the same right to be involved as anyone else. And we ought to use those those privileges for the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not take a stewardship that has been given to us and fail to use it. I'm a firm believer in that. But we've got to guard our motives because it seems to me that in some cases what is going on is that Christians are frantically trying to reverse the downgrade in society in order to make it less hostile to Christians. There was a previous time, many generations ago, several several decades ago anyway, when it wasn't thought bad to be a Christian in America. Christianity was mainstream. And the Christians were more or less in the majority. And it was the other people who were in the minority. And that all seems to be changing. And we don't know how to take that. We're frantic. Hey, we're just finding out how it's been with most of Christians and most of the world for most of the centuries. We better be willing and prepared to stand for truth in Christ regardless of the cost, because unless the Lord brings revival, things aren't going to get better. They're going to get worse. And maybe we ought to give more attention to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than to the world around us while we're busy telling the world what the Bible has to say about the way it lives. We seem to be, in many cases, ignoring great portions of what the Bible has to say about how Christians are supposed to live and how churches are supposed to function. 
Isn't judgment supposed to begin at the house of God? Shouldn't we be more concerned about us? Shouldn't we get the beam out of our eye before we try to take the moat, the, the speck out of our brother's eye or even the speck out of the world's eye? Arm yourself. Arm yourself with the same mind that Christ had. Obedience to my heavenly Father regardless of the cost. Shall we pray? Father, this doesn't come easy. It wars against the flesh. And we would love to find an easier way to be a Christian and to serve you and to travel through this life with fewer difficulties. But Lord, when we read your word honestly, we realize that that's just not possible if we're going to be obedient and pleasing to you. So help us, O Lord, to arm ourselves with the same mind that Christ had as he faced suffering, that we, like him, might always please our Heavenly Father in all that we do, as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.